In this episode of the Living for Truth podcast, we will be resuming our personal reading of Christianity Through the Centuries, A History of the Christian Church by Earl E. Carnes. We are in the section titled The Supremacy of the Papacy from 1054 to 1305 A.D. Chapter 23, Medieval Learning and Worship. The Church can practice diastasis, i.e., separation from culture, or it can practice synthesis. The scholastics did the latter. The scholastic intellectual movement developed between 1050 and 1350 and paralleled the movement of the mendicant and heretical movements of the same period. It found a home at first in the cathedral and monastic schools and later with the rise of universities in the 13th century it dominated the curriculum of European universities. After 1050, the scholastics replaced the fathers of the church as the main guardians of the truth, and doctor became a great, as great a term of honor as father had been earlier in the history of the church. Roman numeral 1. Scholasticism. Heading A. Definition of Scholasticism. The terms scholasticism and scholastic came through the Latin form of the Greek word skole, which signifies a place where learning takes place. Quote-unquote scholastic was applied to teachers in Charlemagne's court or palace school and to the medieval scholars who used philosophy in the study of religion. These scholars sought to prove existing truths by rational processes rather than to seek new truth. Scholasticism may be defined as the attempt to rationalize theology in order to buttress faith by reason. Theology was to be treated from a philosophical point of view rather than from a biblical point of view. The data of Revelation were to begin were to be organized systematically by the use of Aristotelian deductive logic, and were to be harmonized with the newly rediscovered philosophy of Aristotle. The scholastics faced a problem similar to that which the church faced in the 19th century, when the new discoveries of science had to be harmonized with religion. They had to reconcile the general natural philosophy of Aristotle, gained by rational processes, with the special revealed Theology of the Bible, accepted by faith. Heading B. Causes for the Rise of Scholasticism The major cause for the rise in scholasticism was the emergence in Europe of the philosophy of Aristotle. Except for some translations of of parts of Aristotle's philosophy made in the 5th century by monks, led by Boethius, Little was known of his philosophy until Latin translations by William of Morbeck, 1215-86, from Jewish or Arabic sources began to appear in Western Europe in the 12th century. The translations of Aristotle by Averroes in 1126-98, the great Arabic philosopher, were introduced into the West through Spain by 1200. About the same time, translations by Moses Memonides, 1135-1204, a famous Jewish rabbi and philosopher, were appearing in the West. 
Men like Alexander of Hales, 1186 to 1245, welcomed this philosophy and attempted to relate it to theology. Still another cause for the expansion of the scholastic movement was the interest of the new mendicant orders in the use of philosophy in the study of Revelation. Thomas Aquinas, the greatest scholastic of all, and Albertus Magnus, his teacher, were Dominicans, and William of Ockham and Bonaventura were Franciscans. The expansion of the university movement, which began in the 12th century, provided a home for, a new, for the new intellectual movement, and the universities rapidly centered their curriculum around the study of theology by the aid of logic and reason. The University of Paris of Abelard's time became the leading center of scholasticism. Heading C. Content of Scholasticism The student of church history must always remember that the scholastics were not so much seeking truth as they were trying rationally to organize a body of accepted truth so that truth, whether it came by faith from revelation or by reason from philosophy, might be a harmonious whole. The medieval mind sought intellectual as well as political and ecclesiastical unity. The appearance of Aristotelian philosophy in the 12th century forced men to take up this great task. For the scholastics, the data or content of their study was fixed, authoritative, and absolute. The content of their study was the Bible, the canons and creeds of the ecumenical councils, and the writings of the fathers of the church. The question that they wished to settle involved whether or not the faith was reasonable. Heading D. Methodology of Scholasticism Scholastic methodology was as much subject to the authority of Aristotle's dialectic or logic as the content was to the authoritative theology of the Roman Catholic Church. Both content and method were fixed. The modern scientist follows the empirical method of inductive logic and enunciates a general truth on the basis of facts only after he has observed the experimented for and experimented for a long time. Aristotle's dialect or logic is deductive rather than inductive and emphasizes the syllogism as the instrument of deductive logic. The deductive thinker starts with a general truth or rule or law that he does not prove, but that he takes for granted. He relates this general law to a particular fact and form the relationship between the general law and the particular fact derives a conclusion that in turn becomes a new general law or truth to be related to new facts. This method was taken by the scholastics from Aristotle. The general truths of philosophy were taken from revealed theology and using Aristotelian methodology, the scholastics sought to draw legitimate conclusions in order to develop a harmonious system. Passages from the Bible, the Fathers, capital F, and the canons and creeds of the councils and papal decretals were consecrate, were consent, were consented in logical order. Heading E. The Schools of Scholasticism. Both in content and method, then, the scholastics consented to the authority both of the Church and of Aristotle. The philosophic 
The philosophic framework into which most of the scholastics may be fitted was based on Greek philosophy and depended on whether a scholastic followed the general position of Plato or of Aristotle with respect to the problem of the nature of universals or ultimate reality and the relation of faith and reason. Number one, realism. Plato had insisted, as did also his master Socrates and Aristotle, that universals such as church and man have an objective existence. In contrast to Aristotle, Plato insisted that these universals or ideas exist apart from particular things or individuals. For example, he believed that there are universals or truth of truth, beauty, and goodness that exist apart from individual human acts of truth, beauty, and goodness. This view was summed up in the Latin phrase universalia ante rem, that is, universals exist before created things. A good deed, for example, is simply a shadow or reflection of the reality of goodness that exists objectively apart from that deed. Plato thus insisted that man must look beyond this life for ultimate reality. Earlier Augustine, and now Anselm, Anselm, were the leading thinkers who applied this view to theology. This view is known as realism, which in less temperate realists often became pantheism, which merged everything into the universal. Subheading A. Anselm, 1033-1109, who was born in northern Italy, received his education in the Abbey of Beck. Elected as prior of the Abbey, he held the position until he became the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1093. He fought against the practice of lay investiture, which was practiced by the English kings, but his enduring fame rests on his intellectual activities in theology. Anselm's idea of the relationship of reason and faith was summed up in the statement Credo ut intelligum, I believe, in order that I may know. Faith must be primary and must be a foundation for knowledge. This was essentially the position that Augustine had held some centuries before. Anselm applied reason to the verification of faith in two great works. Monologian is really an introductive, inductive argument from effect to cause for the existence of God. This argument, a form of the cosmological argument, may be stated as follows. Man has many goods that he enjoys in life. These goods are simply reflections of the one supreme good, capital G, through whom all exist. Because infinite regress is unthinkable, the cause of all must be the one whom we call God. Anselm's prosologion is a deductive argument for the existence of God. This argument, known as the ontological argument, is based on the doctrine of correspondence. Anselm wrote that everyone has an idea of a perfect supreme being in his mind. This idea must correspond to a reality that has an objective existence, for such a being lacking existence would not be perfect, nor would it be that then that than which a greater cannot be conceived. 
Because no greater idea than that of God, as the perfect supreme being, can be conceived, God must exist in reality. Although these and other intellectual arguments for the existence of God do not conclusively demonstrate his existence, they have a cumulative value in showing an intelligent person that nothing is really ex explicable if God's existence is rejected. Anselm also developed a theory of the atonement in his work, Cure Duis Homo, in other words, translated, Why God Became Man. Man, he wrote, owed absolute obedience to God. This obedience had been withheld by natural man since the sin of Adam, and man was in debt to a God, capital G, who demanded payment of the debt or satisfaction by punishment. The God-man, Christ, by his death on the cross, paid the debt that man could not pay. Thus, man was freed from that obligation. Anselm's view of the atonement was commercial. By, this, by his view, excuse me, but his view dominated orthodox thinking until the time of Thomas Aquinas in the, in the 13th century and ended the patriistic view of the atonement as a ransom paid to Satan. Subheading B. Textbooks, such as Gratian's Decretum, a text on canon law, had an important place in the life of the medieval scholar. Peter Lombard, circa 1095 to circa 1159, a brilliant theological teacher of the University of Paris, wrote what became the theological textbook of the Middle Ages. This was his Four Books of Sentences, is the title of that book, known usually as Sentences, a condensed title, concerning the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Sacraments, and Eschatology. Lombard emphasized the seven sacraments that were finally accepted as authoritative at the Council of Florence in 1439. Subheading 2. Moderate Realism Aristotle held a more moderate view of the nature of reality. He insisted that particular, thi particular things are the most real to us, but universals are most real in themselves. Universals exist in particular things as their common nature. For example, humanity exists in individual people. This view was summed up in the Middle Ages by the phrase universalia en re. The medieval scholastic who accepted Aristotle's framework was known as a moderate realist. Abelard and Thomas Aquinas may be classed as moderate realists, or, as they are sometimes called, conceptualists. Subheading A. A native of Brittany, Abelard, 1079-1142, through 1142, early, early became famous for his intellectual ability. His lectures on theology at the University of Paris became so famous that he had thousands of students in his classes at times. He fell in love with one of his private pupils, Heloise, the niece of a fellow canon named Fulbert. When their love affair and subsequent marriage became known, Fulbert took brutal revenge by having some of ruffians emasculate Abelard. Abelard then persuaded Heloise to go into a convent. His theological views, opposed successfully by Bernard of Clairvaux, the defeat the defeated Abelard was forced to retire to a friendly monastery until his death. Abelard's theological position was that of moderate realism. 
He believed that reality existed first in the mind of God, and then here and now in individuals and things rather than above and beyond this life, and finally in man's mind. In contrast to Augustine and Anselm, Anselm, he held to the idea of intelligio ut credum, I know in order that I may believe. Emphasizing the position of reason in the development of truth, he constantly appealed to it from authority. He believed that doubt would lead to inquiry, and inquiry to truth. He thought that the death of Christ was not to satisfy God, but to impress man with the love of God, so that man would be morally influenced to surrender his life to God. This view of the atonement is known as the moral influence theory. Abelard's outstanding work in Sic et Non. This book consists of 158 propositions arranged to show the views of the fathers pro and con with regard to certain ideas. Thus, Abelard was able to point out the contradictions that existed among the fathers, hoping this method would solve them. He did not reject the stated theology of Roman of the Roman Catholic Church, but his methods made many feel that that he was overemphasizing reason and was therefore a danger to the truth. Subheading B, Albertus Magnus, circa 1193 to 1290, known as the Universal Doctor because of his of the tremendous scope of his knowledge, taught at the University of Paris, but his greatest work was done at Cologne in his homeland. His chief works compendiums of theology and of creation, treat respectively theological and natural science in an effort to reconcile science and religion. This reconciliation was to be finally accomplished by that era by Albert's pupil, Thomas Aquinas. Subheading C. Thomas Aquinas, known as the angelic doctor, was of noble birth, his mother being the sister of Frederick Barbarossa, Barbarossa, Educated at Monte Cassino and at the University of Naples, he became the Dominican monk against the wishes of his parents and devoted himself to study. He was a large, shambling, tacturn, somewhat absent-minded man. When his classmates at Cologne teased him about being a, quote, dumb ox, end quote, the teacher, Albert, remarked that one day the lowing of, the, uh, of this ox would fill the world. The prodigious learning of Thomas was applied to the problem of integrating the new, parentheses, for that day, and parentheses, natural philosophy of Aristotle with the revealed theology of the Bible as interpreted by the church. In so doing, he took the position of moderate realism and became the leading scholastic thinker to uphold that position. He believed that in the realm of natural philosophy, comparable to modern science, man, by the use of reason and logic of Aristotle, could gain such truths as those of God's existence, providence, and immortality. Beyond this realm concerning such ideas as the Incarnation, the Trinity, creation in time, sin, and purgatory, man could only get truth through faith in God's revelation in the Bible, as interpreted by the fathers and the councils. Reality existed in God's mind before it existed in things or in man's mind. Thomas endeavored to synthesize the two areas of faith and reason into a totally 
a totality of truth in his work called Summa Theologiae. Because both are from God, there can be no essential contradiction between them, according to Aquinas. This Summa Contra, Gentiles, was a handbook of arguments from natural revelation to train missionaries to the Muslims. The Summa Theology consists of 3,000 articles, including over 600 questions in three major sections. It was intended to be a systematic exposition of the whole of theology. It, was, it has become, rather, the classic exposition of the system of theology held by the Roman Catholic Church. Neo-Thomistic scholars today study Thomas, great, Thomas's great intellectual cathedral with as much interest as medieval scholars did. The first part, which discusses the existence of and nature of God, emphasized God's being. The Trinity and the work of the Trinity in creation are also discussed. The second section discusses man's, quote, advance toward God, end quote. Thomas took note of the nature of morality and the virtues and pointed out that man's will is bent by sin, though it is not completely determined to evil. Here he broke the, with Augustine, who believed that the human will is helpless to help man a move toward God. The third section concerns Christ as our way to God and stresses Christ's incarnation, life, death, and resurrection. It concludes with a discussion of the seven sacraments as channels of grace instituted by Christ. Thomas shared with other medieval men belief in the hierarchy of truth and order. His view was later expressed poetically by Dante in his Divine Comedy and reasserted by Leo VIII, excuse me, Leo Thirteenth in 1879. Aquinas rationalized the idea of indulgences, created to free one from the satisfaction normally unnecessary, excuse me, normally necessary in the sacrament of penance, by his emphasis on the availability of the extra merits of Christ and the saints. These merits can be drawn up by the church for the penitent. His moderate realism led him to emphasize the church as a corporate institution at the expense of the freedom of the individual. There is also the danger that this postulate of the two realms of knowledge, natural philosophy and biblical revelation interpreted by the church, may lead to a belief in double truth and the separation of knowledge into two realms. Subheading 3. Nominalism the medieval scholastics, known as nominalists, were opposed both to the realists and the moderate realists. Russellinus, and later William of Ockham, were outstanding examples of nominalistic thinking. Their view was expressed in the phrase, universalia post rem. General truths are in ideas have no objective existence outside the mind. Rather, they are merely subjective ideas of common characteristics developed by the mind as a result of the observations of particular things. Universals are only class names. Justice is simply the composite idea that man derives from a consideration of justice in action. The nominalists gave much attention to individuals, whereas the realists and moderate realists were more concerned with the group and the institution. The nominalists were the medieval forerunners of the empiricists of the 17th and 18th centuries and the positivists and pragmatists of our day. 
The nominalists did not deny revelation. Rather, they asserted that it must be believed merely on authority apart from reason, for much that was stated by the church to be authoritative could not be demonstrated by reason. Subheading A. The Franciscans soon began to criticize the work of the great Aquinas, who was a member of the rival Dominican order. This criticism led to the development of a nominalistic position that became dominant during the 14th century, a time of decline for scholasticism. Although John Donne's Scotus, circa 1265 to 1308, laid more emphasis on the individual than on the institution, he was not a nominalist. A nominalist. It was William of Ockham, circa 1280 to circa 1349, who developed a full-fledged nominalism. Ockham insisted that theological dogmas were not rationally demonstrable and that they must be accepted on the authority of the Bible. This view separated faith and reason and denied Aquinas' synthesis of the realms of reason and revelation. Ockham also denied the existence of objective universals and held that the universals are only names for the mental concepts that man develop in their minds. The individual was real and much more important than the institution, according to him. Occam's undermining of the authority of the church as a rationally derived institution aroused Martin Luther's interest in his work. Subheading B. Roger Bacon, circa 1214 to 1292, belonged to the same tradition of Occam, but devoted his time to scientific experiments. In so doing, he laid the foundation for experimental science, the method of which Francis Bacon was to develop in the 17th century. This approach to truth through the realm of nature by experiment was in full accord with the nominalistic position. This intellectual speculative movement of the medieval Roman church concerned itself with the problem of unity in man's intellectual life so that his spiritual and rational knowledge could be harmonized to give him certainty both in the realm of faith and in the realm of reason. The conflict between nominalism and realism was the great problem that the scholastics faced in the early period of the scholasticism of, schola, of the scholasticism between 1050 and 1150. In this era, the realism championed by Anselm and Bernard was victorious. During the period of high scholasticism between 1150 and 1300, the moderate realism championed by Aquinas won out over nominalism. But in the years after 1300, nominalism gained ground in the thinking of theological leaders of the church. Heading F. Results of Scholasticism Realism and moderate realism buttressed the sacramental and hierarchical system of the Roman church by an emphasis on universals that led to the subordination of the individual to the more real corporate group of it or institution. Aquinas's emphasis on the sacraments as the channels of grace strengthened the hold of the Roman Catholic Church on the individual, for there could be no salvation apart from the sacraments dispensed by the hierarchy. Aquinas's view that reason precedes revelation as a means of knowledge but is completed by revelation led to a danger that people might separate truth known by these two methods into two spheres, the secular and the sacred. The actual divorce is apparent in the thinking of, no, of the nominalists, who believe that there is a realm of scientific truth and another of theological truth, instead of seeing that the two are simply parts of a greater whole that is unified in God as the Creator.
Nominalism created a new interest in in man since, according to it, the individual was more real than the institution. This interest sponsored much of the materialism of the Renaissance as people began to think of man as autonomous, and it led to an exaltation of the experimental method as the main avenue to truth. Others who followed the nominalistic views moved in the direction of, the, of mysticism as a way by which the individual could come directly into the presence of God. Above all, in the Summa Theologiae of Aquinas, scholasticism furnished the medieval and modern Roman Catholic Church with an authoritative, integrated synthesis that harmonized philosophy and religion. Today, in a restudy of the work of Aquinas, the Neo-Thomists seek to furnish an integration of science and religion for the modern Roman Catholic. One cannot dismiss the scholasticism as hair-splitting dialecticians any more than one can condemn modern scientists as grubbers for facts who have no sense of integration or morality in the use of their facts. Roman numeral two, the rise of universities. The university as a center for teaching and research developed about 1200. By 1400, there were over 75 European universities. In these schools, scholastics studies formed a large part of the curriculum. Most of the great universities of modern Europe had their beginnings in this period. Teaching on the higher level had gone on before the development of universities, but after the rise most after their rise, most of higher education, which had centered in monastic and cathedral schools, was given in university classrooms. Heading A Reasons for the Rise Several reasons account for the rapid rise of universities after twelve hundred. Martinus Capella in about 425, adapted the Roman quadrivium and trivium to the, reu- to the use of religion. Grammar, rhetoric, and logic made up the trivium. Geometry, arithmetic, astronomy, and music were included in the quadrivium. The trivium was, used, was useful for training the clergy in public speaking so that they could fulfill their preaching function effectively. The quadrivium was useful in the establishment of the dates of sacred festivals of the church. These studies were used in Charlemagne's palace school and were based on the model of monastery schools for learning between 550 and 1100. Other centers for higher learning sprang up in connection with the cathedral, church, of the bishop and archbishop. The University of Paris developed from the cathedral school connected the Notre Dame with Notre Dame Cathedral. A second reason for the rise of universities was the presence of a great teacher in a school. In the 11th century, Ernarius developed a reputation as a great scholar of Roman law, and students flocked to Bologna to hear him. Soon, there was a thriving university at Bologna. Abelard's fame as a teacher contributed greatly to a development of the university in Paris. Other universities came into being as a result of student revolts or migrations. Because the English and French kings were quarreling shortly after the middle of the 12th century, English students who felt that they were mistreated at the University of Paris revolted against conditions there and moved in 1167 or 1168 to Oxford in England. From this revolt, the great University of Oxford, Cambridge, grew out of 
Cambridge grew out of a student revolt and exodus from Oxford to Cambridge in 1209. Heading B. Organization of the Universities Medieval university organization differed considerably from that of modern times. The universitas, from which our word for university is derived, was a guild or corporation of students or teachers set up for purposes of common protection, protection while the group went on with its work. The phrase stadium general was used to describe this group in its educational function. The universities of southern Europe followed the practice of Bologna, where the corporation was made up of students who organized for mutual protection against abuses from its towns, from the towns where they were located, or from failure on the part of their teachers. From a king or other overlord of the area, the university received a charter that set forth its rights, privileges, and responsibilities. Bologna was noted for the study of law, but Salerno gained its fame as a university of advanced medical teaching and research. The universities of northern Europe were organized on the model of Paris. Here, the guild which received the charter was made up of teachers. The university usually had four faculties. The arts were the general course for all. Theology, law, and medicine were more advanced studies. The student in, ge in the general curriculum of the arts studied the trivium, which led to the bachelor's degree. Further study of the quadrivium gave him a master's degree, which was essential if he desired to become a teacher. Continued study in other faculties might give him a doctorate in law, theology, or medicine. Students in the medieval university began their studies as early as the 14th birth their 14th birthday, although they were usually between 16 and 18 when they entered the university. They had the privilege the privileges of clergymen. Examinations were oral, comprehensive, and public. And during the course of an examination, the student had to defend a thesis against teachers or students. Instruction was in Latin. Because there were textbooks only for the teachers, the students had to do a good deal of memorizing. A good memory and the use of logic were as important to them as reading and research are in the modern university. Learning was to be by lecture and debate. Most of the paraphernalia of modern university life comes from medieval times. The nomenclature of many degrees, examinations, gowns, hoods, and basic elements of the curriculum were created in medieval times. The teaching of successive generations of students and the advancement of learning by research or functions that the modern university has inherited from its medieval ancestor. Above all, the university in medieval times kept alive and developed the study of theology. The great scholastics were also the greatest university teachers. Universities served the interests of the church in medieval times by preparing students for service in it instead of preparing them for service in the fields of science and industry as the modern university does. Scholasticism and the universities were closely associated in the service of the church. They poured a steady stream of personal trained in of personnel trained in the arts, law, and theology into its hierarchy. Roman numeral three, medieval life and worship. Gothic architecture was preceded by the Byzantine style in which great domes on pendentives and decorative mo mosaics were used in St. Sophia and St. Mark's. 
later Romanesque architecture from 1100 to 1150 had heavy round arches and a cruciform shape. Durham Cathedral is an example of this later architecture. Medieval university towers, representative of scholasticism, had their counterpart in the spheres of the Gothic cathedral that has often been described as, quote, Bible in stone, end quote. The great medieval cathedrals, emphasizing vertical lines, often took about a century to build. They expressed the spiritual nature of the age as much as the skyscraper expressed the materialistic spirit of the 20th century. Many of these great churches were raised in northern and western Europe between 1150 and 1550. Like scholasticism, at its peak during the 13th century, was pioneered by Suger, the abbot of St. Denis. Although the earthbound Renaissance architect thought of medieval architecture as barbaric and therefore Gothic, later ages have not sustained his view, his viewpoint. Gothic buildings have certain characteristics that show the skill of the medieval builders. On going into a Gothic cathedral, one notices the cruciform floor plan of the building, expressive of the central symbol of the Christian church. The use of the pointed arch instead of the rounded Roman arch is instantly noticeable and leads the eye and aspirations upward from the earth. Ribbed vaulting and flying buttresses, long ribs attached to the roof and to separate pillars, or buttresses built on into the walls of the cathedral, convey the weight of the roof to the earth, so that the upper walls could be thin and windows could be put in to admit light, so badly needed in the gloomy days of northern European winters. Usually there are three doors at the west end of the church. All ornamentation, whether stained glass windows or statues, was subordinated to the design of the whole building. A statue seen on the ground might seem grotesquely out of proportion, but the same statue in its niche above the doors blends into the design of the building harmoniously. Colors are used by the worker in stained glass to illustrate stories as clearly as possible. The best examples of the medieval Gothic cathedral were built within a hundred-mile radius of Paris. The Cathedral of Notre Dame is noted for its beautiful facade. Both the cathedrals at Chartres and Northern or Notre Dame have outstanding rose windows above the main entrance that show the skillful use of colored glass by the medieval artisan. The significance of the Gothic cathedral is much more important than its characteristics. The cathedral represented the supernaturalistic spirit of the age, clearly by its dominating position in the town and by its symbolic expressions of biblical truth. The social solidarity of medieval man was expressed by the fact that the great cathedrals were built as community enterprises extending over decades, with all ranks and classes taking part in the work. Cologne Cathedral was built from about 1248 to 1880. The cathedral also had a real educational value because it's because in stained glass window and statue the illiterate peasant might see for himself the truth of the Bible.
Often a center for social and many other activities of the town, the cathedral was, above all, a place where the soul might come into contact with God in the act of worship. All the ceremonies important to the religious life of the individual occurred in the church, and one who lived in the cathedral, a church of a bishop, town was a considered fortunate uh, was considered fortunate. He was baptized, confirmed, and married in the church. He was buried from the church in the cemetery within the grounds of the church. But the most important part of worship, whether the building was a cathedral or a simple church, was the mass. After the fourth after the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215, it was a part of the Roman Catholic dogma that the priest's words of consecration changed the bread and the wine into the actual body and blood of Christ. Christ was sacrificed afresh by the priests, by the priest, for the benefit of the believers. It did not matter that the cup was withheld from the believer after the 12th century, for the body and blood were, according to Roman dogma, in each element. The practice of alleviating the elements by the priest became a custom in the 13th century in order that the, fi- the faithful might worship Christ in the Mass. The development of polyphonic music, which consisted of many melodic lines and hence has, was better sung by trained choirs, ended the practice of congregational singing in unison. Music became elaborate and colorful as a proper accompaniment to the sacred mysteries of the Mass. Soon, seven sacraments developed, including the Mass, Baptism, which supposedly washed away the stain of original sin, Confirmation, Penance, Extreme Unction, Marriage, and Ordination. All sacraments were thought to dispense special grace. One cannot overlook the real and positive contributions of the Roman Church between 590 and 1305. Despite the many evidences of failure in personal and institutional practices, It gave Greco-Roman culture and the Christian religion to the Germans who took over the Roman Empire. It provided the only real culture and scholarship which kept learning alive through the work of such scholars as Bede, Alcyon, Einhard, and others. The moral tone of society was improved by the mitigation of the evils of slavery, the elevation of the position of women, and the softening of the horrors of feudal war. The Roman Church sponsored what relief and charitable work was done in the Middle Ages. It provided an intellectual synthesis for life in the theological system that the scholastics developed, and it, and it impressed on people their solidarity as members of the Church. Despite the decentralization, decentralizing tendencies of feudalism, God used the Roman Catholic Church to further his own ends in spite of its failure at so many points when it is compared with the true church depicted in the New Testament.